This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell's going on now? Well, what the hell is going on is we've had a massive intelligence failure in the form of a 21-year-old junior enlisted member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard who was able to obtain hundreds of pages of highly classified intelligence. I mean, finished CIA products, details on U.S. spying on our allies, uh, details of our penetration of the Russian military intelligence agency, details of the U.S. government assessment of Taiwan's vulnerability to a Chinese attack, our knowledge of uh, advances in Chinese cyber and hypersonic capabilities. And he took this stuff and shared it with his friends on a gaming chat room called Discord, in basically not in the behest of a foreign power, but to show off to his friends. And the U.S. for eight months, the U.S. government didn't even know it was happening. It only found out when some of the people started posting some stuff on social media and it started leaking out. And then all of a sudden, because of that, the U.S. government found out and uh, arrested this guy. But it's it. This is just a, you know, for for lack of a better word, a you know what show. <laughs> I think what you're trying to say there, Mark, is we got an explicit rating. I could say shit show, can I? Yes, and you're exactly <laughs> right. So I think a lot of people have have focused on the substance of this, and I, I kind of want to really upfront for our listeners dispense with that. Some of the the big revelations, for example, the United States is concerned about Ukrainian air superiority. Guess what, folks? Either you haven't been paying attention. Or if you were, you already knew the United States was concerned about Ukrainian air superiority. The Ukrainians running out of ammo. Again, guess what? We already knew that. And not only did we already know that, we already knew that in the public domain. Sure, this this leak contained some additional details, some of which I questioned the veracity of. But at the end of the day, the problem here that is really worth talking about is the leak itself, and as Mark rightly just said, the fact that that apparently our counterintelligence people and our operational security is so lame that someone can share stuff not secretly at a drop, uh, not secretly over you know over some over some classified system on Tor, nah, on Discord, which is available if you Google you know Discord. And we didn't know anything about it. That is the that is the subject that is deserving of our consternation. Well, I think they're both deserving of our consternation because you know, yeah, it, is is this on the level of Edward Snowden? No, it's not on the level of Edward Snowden. But it's serious stuff. Some of this stuff is labeled top secret for a reason. <laughs> you know, some of it is you know, ridiculous, like the assessment that the Ukraine conflict is going to be stuck in a stalemate because the Ukrainians don't have the ability, they're, they're questioning the spring offensive. Well, why is that? It's because 
we're not providing them with the weapons. It's like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, and we've had lots of discussions of that on the podcast, but I wouldn't be so dismissive of the content of this. But, but yeah, I agree with you. The lameness of our counterintelligence and our uh, our ability to notice that this stuff is missing, that a guy was able to take a camera into a skiff and take pictures of this stuff and that no one noticed it is highly problematic. And I also think, quite frankly, it really uh, shows the urgency of why we need to ban TikTok as soon as possible. Because what this shows is that a 21-year-old, low-level, low-ranking individual can have access to a lot of high-value information that our enemies may want to get. And right now, the Chinese communist regime is collecting, you know, reams and reams of data on America, 67% of American teenagers who use TikTok. They're collecting their keystrokes and their voice prints and their fingerprints and their messages and all the rest of it. And, you know, they look at this guy Tashira and say, there's millions of potential Tashiras out there who can give us information, not just in the intelligence community. I mean, the commercial espionage, intellectual property theft, you know, research at universities. There's all sorts of non-public information that the Chinese want. And what this has shown is that they can get it from a 21-year-old kid. Well, that's right. And again, I don't mean to downplay in the sense that this is always wrong, in the sense that anything that is highly classified should not be leaked. Uh, I think the revelations are not quite as as shocking as, as the media has portrayed them. What really shocks me is, is, as you say, and by the way, for our listeners who are wondering if every podcast is going to come back to the fact that we ought to ban TikTok, the answer is yes, that's right. Every podcast <laughs> is going to come back to the fact that we, ought to, that we ought to ban TikTok. And that's right, we ought to. But, you know, again, there is so much of this information out there and we need to vet people more seriously. We need to narrow access to specially compartmented information SCI clearance, which is above top secret and and can involve things that are not just, ooh, I read that in the New York Times and now I see it in the classified information, but things that we actually don't know. Nuclear posture, for example, Chinese operational plans for the wider Pacific, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't want to see that on somebody's uh, on somebody's Discord uh, blog when they're trying to show off to their mates. So yeah, these are really big problems. The big danger of these leaks even if you're not concerned about the substance of it, so as being sort of world-changing, what can be world-changing is when our enemies go and reverse engineer this and figure out a way to shut off our access so that we don't get more information because a lot of the stuff that is coming from those streams might not have been exposed in these leaks, but it's in even more highly classified intelligence that hasn't been exposed. And so you're losing sources and methods. And then the other danger, quite frankly, becomes with, with human sources, that people just, when they see that the U.S. government can't protect its secrets, and when they see that a 21-year-old kid can take pictures of finished CIA products and post them on Discord, they say, you know what, it may not be worth me risking my life to share information with the United States government. And so there's so we lose a lot of intelligence solely from, in, in ways that we'll never know or never be able to quantify by individual decisions made by people in, in foreign governments to not cooperate with the U.S., to not share information with us, that even if, even if this didn't necessarily burn human sources, human sources are watching this and potential human sources are watching this and deciding just it's just like what we talked about with Afghanistan when we, we, we withdrew so bad, we withdrew so catastrophically and abandoned our allies by and left them behind enemy lines across the world. 
in countries that we may have a conflict with 20 years from now, or you know, or may need to need, need people 30 years. People just watched that and said, "Yeah, I'm not going to risk my life to help the Americans. Not worth it." It's the same thing with the intelligence community. We're relying on people who are go willing to betray their own governments because their governments are doing bad things in order to advance freedom and democracy and stop wars. And if we can't if we can't protect that information, then people aren't going to share it with us, and that harms our national security and our ability to prevent, deter, and if necessary, win wars. I think all of that is absolutely true. And I want to I want to raise another element for people. There's something about classified information. I don't know what it is, uh, but I've seen it, you know, over over decades now in Washington. Whenever there's a leak of classified information, people treat it as if it is the gospel as the Ten Commandments handed down from God to Moses on Mount Sinai. Okay, this must be true because it's classified. And that there are a number of risks there. The first one is, guys, let me just tell you, I've seen plenty of unleaked classified information. That's garbage. Because these are based on, these are often based on analyses. Let me just say, some of the analysis is garbage. You know, uh, CIA, DIA, all of our intelligence community are just as fallible as anybody else in making bad analyses. But when you see that classified stamp on it, that top secret, that SCI, journalists in particular are just absolutely entranced. And it doesn't matter how sophisticated they are. They are. And so what does this mean? This means that there is an opportunity for people out there to leak so-called classified information that isn't actually genuine. And that's what we've also seen happen. My friends, I've got friends at the at the agency who tell me that while some of these leaks are genuine, others of them have been altered over time by foreign agencies or by uh, allies of foreign countries in order to put the worst possible spin. So again, don't don't believe what you see. Don't believe what you read necessarily. Use your brain. And remember, just because it says top secret doesn't mean it's right. And then there's another aspect of this, which is that, you know, the media jumps all over these things and publishes the information in the in the lead classified documents that has no, you know, it is one thing a justification for the media if they if the classified documents expose some sort of abuse of power right? Or alleged abuse of power inside the government. That was the justification for you know, the leaking, uh, publishing the Snowden documents. Some of this stuff that they're putting out is just intelligence porn. It's, it's you know, stuff that drives clicks and sells newspapers and has no redeeming public value to share in the public domain. And maybe, you know, they say, well, it's out on Discord so people have it, so we might as well publish it. Well, no, you're amplifying it. You're sharing it more broadly. And so, you know, there's there's sort of a seedy aspect to this of some people in the media reporting some of this stuff that doesn't need to get reported. The details don't. The fact of the leak needs to be reported. But why, why would you share the details of some of this stuff when it has no redeeming value whatsoever? Yeah, that's another podcast. Why does the media not have enough integrity? And the answer is... Uh, that's another podcast, for sure. So let's get to our guest. Uh, it's uh, Mark Polymeropoulos. I'm really impressed with myself that I said that right. Mark Polymeropoulos is a first, <laughs> first time as a guest with us. He's a non-resident senior fellow in the forward defense practice at the uh, Atlantic Council. Uh, but 
one of the reasons why we wanted him on today is he worked for 26 years at the CIA. He retired in, in July of 2019 at the senior intelligence service level. He was one of the agency's most highly decorated operations officers and for the uninitiated operations officers, uh, as opposed to uh, analysts are spies. Uh, he is also the author of Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. Here's our interview. Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you all. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. So the American people have been shocked to learn that a 21-year-old junior enlisted member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard was able to access hundreds of pages of highly classified intelligence, including Finnish CIA products, top secret intelligence on our war plans, on the Ukrainian government's capabilities, on the, you know, our knowledge of Chinese military capabilities, our ability to penetrate the Russian GRU military intelligence. This is big stuff. And this 21-year-old kid got access to it, shared it with friends online, and the U.S. government didn't even know it had happened until it broke on social media because people started sharing this. How the hell does this happen? Well, that's that's a question I think all of Washington uh, and probably you know a lot of our partners around the world were asking. But the first thing I have to say is how has Cape Cod, Massachusetts, become the center of the intelligence world? Um, uh, I, I, you know, the fact that's you know Otis uh, 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 Otis Base. Um, look, I, I think that if you have an understanding of the intelligence community, a couple things. First of all, is that the Air National Guard and National Guard units. Um, do play an integral role in, in war fighting. And this intelligence unit um, uh, on Cape Cod uh, uh, is actually quite significant. You know, when I first heard of this, and I, I haven't really even talked about this before, I recalled two years ago, I was contacted by this unit to come out and give a leadership talk to them. So, I, you know, I scratched my head when I first heard of this. And, and it's because the unit, and then, you know, I, I, I had an idea from before, but also... Um, from looking up just on their website, you know, they had a worldwide mission. They were providing support, for example, to what you all know and, and, and your listeners, too, about, about uh, U.S. military ISR operations, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, so intel support to that. Then they switched to supporting the UCOM, the European Command Area of Operations. And so it's not unheard of to have this kind of, you know, again, <laughs> unit based out in a, in a beach town supporting, you know, senior U.S. military. I think that for me, what is what is most kind of interesting about this is, of course, how a young 21-year-old would have access uh, to essentially what is an update for senior U.S. military leaders. And, and if you know, thinking about it and, and kind of working through it, first of all, in the U.S. military, there's 19-year-olds who take care of nuclear reactors on, on attack subs, nuclear attack subs. There's 20-year-olds who work at the National Security Agency. So Age to me was not the issue. It's more of two things. One is the background investigation, you know, what happened or didn't happen. Uh, and then the ability of someone who essentially is a systems administrator to access, uh, you know, all this classified information where they have to work on systems, but but often they do have access to this. So I think that's where this is really going to go. It's, it's, you know, restricting access to those without the need to know, but also the, the background process uh, on uh, uh, on individuals who, again, at young age are given responsibilities, but um, it's uh, it's onboarding and kind of continued monitoring of those who have top secret clearances. I think the you know the Hill Congress is going to really take a look at that. Let's keep talking about form for a second. Part of the problem here is that so much information is classified. First of all, it's not easy to keep track. Let's say you are tech support, which is basically what this guy was. You know, well. 
people who have top secret SCI clearances, you know, they need tech support as well. So there you have this, this young guy doing this. All right. I guess I can understand how that happens, as you rightly say. Some, you know, we've got we've got nineteen-year-olds handling nuclear submarines. Why not classified information? On the other hand, isn't part of the burden here because there is such an enormous mass of classified information? Right. And so I, I think one of the things that this has has brought out into public, and and a lot of us, and, and certainly you all have. I'm sure thought a lot about this too. Is you know this kind of this this massive overclassification issue in the U.S. national security structure, and and you know there's I I I think I saw a figure there's over a million people with top secret clearances, and you know anything that the U.S. government does, you know and, and you know uh, gets stamped with some kind of kind of uh, classification, and so that is actually a really interesting and I think good discussion to have. I believe even Bill Burns and, and perhaps Abril Haynes have come out and talked quite a bit about this too. So there is an overclassification issue. Um, no doubt about that. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that I, that I find so interesting, I'm going to take us in all different directions. We could, we could, I could talk to you all for, for hours because, you know, when I started it, you know, 26 years ago, you know, the, the ratio or the balance between the secret world and the open source world was probably what, you know, if you really wanted to understand something, maybe it's 80% you know, classified information. This is signals intelligence, human intelligence, imagery, and then 20% open source. But it's flipped right now. And so the fact of the matter is, uh, uh, you know, you, you can one can follow the war in Ukraine, for example, um, with with the tremendous and explosive growth of, of open source or commercially sourced intelligence. And in, in, in the sense where I think that the classified world is only this small niche that's really going to help us. You know, what is Vlad, a penetration of the Russians? What is Vladimir Putin really thinking? Um, that's still critically important. But. Uh, uh, I've raised this all in that, you know, I think that we probably certainly, you know, we, we certainly do overclassify uh, uh, things and there should be, you know, th that, sh that should be looked at. And I don't think there's any disagreement um, on that. But, it's, that, you know, but as, as you all know, the U.S. national security structure is an aircraft carrier. And to, to change anything, you know, it's a massive shift that takes a long time. So, you know, we'll see what if any reforms come out of this. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with Danny in the sense that I don't I don't disagree that there is an overclassification. A problem in the U.S. government, but there's no overclassification of SCI information. <laughs> I mean, that, that there, there's overclassification of, of confidential right. information, maybe even some secret information that shouldn't be. Our penetration of the GRU is not overclassified. Our understanding of China's, you know, hypersonic missile capabilities is not overclassified. Uh, this is not stuff that is an overclassification issue. And so I could understand if if a 21-year-old guy, tech support guy, is getting access to, you know, secret or confidential information. You know, when I was at the White House and I had a TSSCI clearance, I mean, every compartment is, has a code word and you have to get an individual briefing right. to enter into that individual compartment. And, you know, was this, was this guy read into every single compartment here? And or it, it just strikes me as the pyramid gets thinner and thinner as you go up the chain of, of how sensitive this information is. And how was he able to get and then share some of this highly, highly sensitive information with a, a Discord server group to show off to his friends is just beyond me. You know, it, it goes back to me as a, as a former you know, case officer. This is about, you know, the I'm going to be dramatic here, but, you know, the frailty of the human condition. This was a flawed individual. You know, someone who, again, if you read and if you if you believe some of the press reporting on this, you know, was almost, you know, in this this in these in these discord chats, he was act, acting almost like a cult figure, 
uh, you know, obviously showing off to his friends who, who revered him. You know, that's a little different uh, as we look at the motivations, uh, you know, particularly of spies over the years. You know, perhaps, you know, it's ideological or it's or for monetary gain. This is not a spy. This is someone who was leaking information. But I don't think, you know, when, you know, the counterintelligence staff and the various organizations, I'm not sure how much they uh, take someone like this uh, uh, into account. And I think they should. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think this is going to be, there, there's going to be a lot of lessons learned. So for example, if you, when you remember you were getting your security clearances, you know, they ask you questions such as, you know, are you a communist or are you a terrorist? I mean, I'm being very, you know, basic on this stuff. They didn't say that, you know, what, what gaming rooms are you talking, <laughs> are you, are you involved with? Um, you know, and, and, and so I think that's, uh, that, that's, that's interesting. The, 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 you know, the last part too is I saw yesterday that I think the, you know, the intelligence duties of this, uh, this wing out at the, um, the Massachusetts Air National Guard has they have been suspended because I, I suspect there's going to be, um, some, you know, some, some pretty basic security requirements that weren't met. So for example, you know, the, the ability, somehow he was taking, you know, photographs, um, you know, obviously you're not supposed to bring your cell phone into a skiff, you know, a classified, classified area. Uh, and then the last piece to throw out there, one more, uh, you know, thing on this is that, you know, in the national security world, I actually, at CIA, I had, I had colleagues who, you know, one in particular, I can't really talk about it publicly, but it was arrested for espionage. Actually, two of them were. Um, uh, there's a massive violation of trust. Um, and, and again, that's because these are human beings and, you know, our job in, in, in counterintelligence, you want to minimize the risk of this happening, but you know, the notion that, that this is never going to happen, uh, I think is, is false. You know, when I don't care if it's, you know, you know, Bill Burns or, or Mike Pompeo, whoever takes over at CIA knows they're going to have really good days with huge intelligence successes, some bad days with failures. And then days like this, where there's a leak, where there's a compromise. Um, you know, it is almost impossible to I'll give a sports analogy, you know, pitch a shutout in baseball or as goalie, not let a goal in. You want to do everything to mitigate that that uh, that occurring. But it's you know, when you have human beings involved, um, sometimes bad apples are going to get through. Of course, that's true, Mark. Let's talk a little bit about the security side of this. OK, there are, there are bad apples everywhere. You know, we, we certainly know that. We see how many shootings there are. We see there are robberies happening. There are bad apples all the time. And I think even a bad apple can slip through the security clearance process when they don't have a lot of history. And this is a kid. He's in the military already. And, you know, it's not like you, me, or, or, or Mark with a background check where we've got decades and decades of, of background they can check up on. You know, this is a kid. So uh, so it's, it's harder. And I, we all understand that. On the other hand, this was sitting on the internet for quite a long time, long enough for our enemies to grab it, long enough for trolls to grab it, long enough for Russian intelligence to see it and begin forging elements of it so that people think that uh, that all of it now is true when it isn't. What the hell is wrong with our counterintelligence capabilities that we didn't know this? Right, Danielle. So, you know, you, you bring up a, a, a great point. And so now what's going to happen is we're going to get into a, a, a situation where, you know, can we or, or do we have our counterintelligence or security, security folks have the ability to monitor an employee's use of something like social media? There are huge privacy concerns in this. And so, you know, uh, uh, you know, so so, I, you know, I, I wonder how we even we even even do that on your you know when you apply to uh, you know uh, one of the three letter agencies 
um, or the military, and then as you as you have continued access to classified information, do so you have to give them your you know your your not only your Twitter handles because they will monitor this anyway, but but in terms of you know your handles for some of these chat rooms, and then the next part of the the question is you know on some of these things such as Discord and others you know does should the U.S. Uh, counterintelligence staff of, of various agencies you know be kind of searching you know the dark web for such things I, you know it's it's a it's a really good question uh, but I think that you know one of the things I think they'll look at is is there more of this happening the notion that it's been out there for for months is is of course embarrassing to the Department of Defense. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, the, the next step on this, you know, you always try to you always try to you know fix things. Um, so how does one in the national security world, in the security world, monitor, um, uh, you know, chat rooms like this? Uh, you know, should we have people, you know, searching the Web for, uh, 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 you know, uh, for, for such kind of, you know, gaming rooms or, or other things? These are these are pretty, pretty weighty questions, particularly when let me just throw on on top of this all. And, you know, I'm. I, you know, I, I, I kind of uh, I write on and, and think about national security all the time. I'm critical of the intelligence community when it needs to be. I mean, the background process in getting security clearance, you know, sorry to say, ain't that impressive. Um, you know, you, you give your five best friends who they'll go talk to. Um, who, all of them are going to say, yeah, Mark's a great guy. Um, but but, you know, the, I, I'm, I've never I was never impressed with, you know, the, the you know, that they that they dive so deeply in. Um, you know, the agency, of course, relies on the polygraph and your financial disclosure forms. But in terms of kind of the background process itself, uh, uh, it, it never <laughs> was all that impressive to me. So I think even that has to be tightened up. Let's talk about TikTok for a second, because, you know, one of the lessons that China has certainly taken from this is that a low ranking individual can have access to high value information. Right. Something like 67 percent of teenagers are on TikTok right now. And that allows the Chinese to collect, you know, their browsing history, their keystroke patterns, their text messages, their unsent text messages, their images, their video location data on millions and millions and millions of American kids who are then, even if they don't go into the national security field, are going to be low level employees in major corporations, in research institutions, in, you know, all these different places and they can exploit that information to find all the other Tashiras out there and either, you know, coerce them or trick them into providing this information. And the, the intelligence, if, if this guy hadn't put this on Discord, if he was just sharing this with Beijing, we might never have found out. How big a threat is TikTok? So, so first of all, I think there's, you know, there certainly is consensus. That actually scares me when I say that if there's consensus between uh, uh, the national security, you know, all, all aspects of kind of the national security blob, you know, maybe we should question it. But there is consensus that TikTok is a threat and, and is a danger. And I, I fully buy into that. Um, you know, the, you know, I, as, as we saw, you know, this, this, you know, the Chinese kind of balloon traverse across the United States and everyone lose their minds over this. You know, it, the, what, what really should have uh, uh, occurred is a, is a bigger question on the extent of Chinese espionage activities in the U.S. and things such as TikTok, um, uh, which is which is a great threat. My worry on TikTok, though, is and again, I have a 20 year old and a 22 year old. You know, I, both my wife and I worked for, for the agency. We're both retired. So my kids are very cognizant of the national security world. We've been subject to, you know, death threats from terrorists. We've had, you know, security at our house here in the United States and, and overseas. But when I tell them, stop using TikTok, they look at me like I'm an old, you know, fogey. Um, I'm sorry to say. And, you know, again, these are, I don't know how when you have, what, what, is, what is the percentage of, of Generation Z that uses TikTok? It's staggering. I don't know how you wean them off that. 
um, in terms of banning it. Uh, I, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I just gave uh, some lectures at the U.S. Naval Academy, um, and I love going to Annapolis. I, di I, didn't, I didn't attend Annapolis, but I love going there because that actually inspires me about America. That The quality of the students is, is stunning. And, we, and there was a big discussion about TikTok. And I asked them just on, on a personal level, 150 of them in a lecture, and I said, you know, so, so I, you know, you all must not be permitted to use TikTok. And they said, yeah, yeah, sort of, whatever. And I was like, well, hold on a second. Um, because if, if students at the Naval Academy kind of understand the threat but still use it on the side, what about the rest of Generation Z? And so I don't know. I, I know we should ban it. It is, it is a threat to the United States. There is no doubt. I don't know how we do so when you have, you know, 65% of Generation Z, you know, addicted to this, this medium. Um, there's there's got to be something that we do ultimately that maybe can, can mitigate the risk. But but uh, but boy, 50, I'm turning 54 soon. I can scream all day at the dangers of TikTok. I don't know anybody in Generation Z who's going to listen to me. So we just had a podcast on AI and sort of the threat that AI poses. And we there was just a story uh, the other day about a, a mother in Arizona who got a call from her 15 year old daughter crying and sobbing that she had been kidnapped. And it turned out that it was a deep fake, that these scammers had taken her voice and convinced her mother that she had been kidnapped. Unfortunately, she called the father and she was with the father. So they, they figured out quickly that it wasn't her. But one of the things that China's collecting with TikTok are voice prints from, from your phone. So your kids are talking on their online, online chats and all the rest of it. And they're collecting the voice prints of 150 million Americans at some point. Can't they, they'd be able to use AI to do the exact same thing for, you know, national security or commercial espionage. Right. It's pretty, pretty terrifying. No, no doubt about that. And so, you know, I suppose that, you know, the more, you know, we kind of talk about and expose the dangers of TikTok, the better, you know, legally, can we actually ban it? And then number two, if it's not banned, I just, I just, you know, Generation Z is hooked on it. So it, this is, you know, it's, it, it's, e it's easy for us all to, to talk about the dangers of it, but in terms of legislatively or, or you know, you know what, what can actually be done, um, that, that to me is, 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 is quite curious. And so, you know, we'll see. But no doubt, it's a, it's a huge threat. I mean, I, I, I don't use TikTok. I mean, I, I would never do so, but my kids certainly do, and I can't get them to stop. Yeah. Well, I can explain to both of you how you can unwind it. It is actually not that difficult. And it's been surprising to those of us who understand something called the CFIUS process, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., uh, that the Biden administration has yet to do it. Uh, my suspicion is that the Biden administration really actually enjoys the influence of so-called influencers, uh, political influencers in particular on TikTok. But in terms of the how, um, you know, it can very easily be done uh, at the federal level, and then it is taken off the app store. And if you've ever tried to download an app from a foreign country, you know it's not actually doable. So, that the, I think the technical part of this isn't isn't that hard. Let, let's come back a second to this this leak, though. Um, one of the things that interested me when I I looked at your commentary is, and I actually really agreed with you, is that you said. Everybody's hair is on fire. Un douse yourself. You know, uh, uh, relax a little bit. Yes, some of this is bad, uh, but in terms of overall, this should be a source of concern. But it shouldn't be a source of what Noah Rothman over at National Review called hysteria. Uh, what do you think? Explain to our listeners: hysteria or uh, you know, problematic, but not hair on fire. 
So, so, I mean, well, the the media reaction was hysterical and there's a lot of uh, uh, people uh, and I don't, you know, and and they write from, you know, and this goes from kind of the the Fox national security set to the New York Times to the Washington Post national security sets, all really good journalists. But I think they lost their minds. I I really do. And it's almost the sense of, you know, a, a scandal is good because we can write on it. I mean, literally people who I really respected were saying this is worse than Snowden. And, and I sat back, and I really thought about this a lot because it, that, that made no sense to me. So, so understanding the intelligence business, and, and let me just say, I have no access to, to the inner workings of the government on this, so I could be totally wrong. But in my experience, when I was in government, you know, what goes across these channels? Well, it, this is kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, U.S. military communication systems where they're going to give executive updates to the senior staff at, at, at the Pentagon. It, it looked like here in the, in the Joint Chiefs. What and 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 then again, I was very careful not to actually read the slides themselves because they're top secret. But actually, reading press reports on it. I mean, I still have that in the back of my mind that you know what I should and shouldn't do. But the other part, which I think the media got wrong, and again, they were talking about outrage amongst allies. And my response to that, frankly, is bullshit. Um, you know, U.S. embassies overseas, in which I served at many, you know, we develop bilateral relationships, you know, to weather storms like this. Uh, and so, you know, you know, are there going to be difficult conversations perhaps with U.S. ambassadors or station chiefs or the defense attaches with their counterparts? Sure. And then you get back down to business because what do you have? You have a land war, in, the biggest land war in Europe since World War II. You know, our intelligence sharing is not going to stop. That was another kind of comment. Um, that's crazy. Uh, and, the, and, and then the last piece of it, and, and you know, this, and I, and this, is, this is kind of the part that, that really kind of I start scratching my head. Some of the content, the substance of it was wrong. You know, Bakhmut is going to fall. It never happened. Or, or, or the, the notion of, of Mossad officials, and I worked in the Middle East. I worked with the Israelis a lot. The notion that Mossad officials somehow were helping foment political unrest uh, uh, in Israel is insane. And so there was no outrage amongst Israeli officials. You know, clearly, I, I follow Israeli politics, and I remember in late February when, and this was publicized in the Israeli press, the Mossad senior leadership said, look, we are okay with our rank and file if they want to protest to go out in the street. That's wildly different than what was in this and these uh, 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 disclosures that somehow the Mossad senior leadership was was trying to undermine uh, uh, Israeli prime minister um, that, you know, knowing Mossad, it's, a, it's an apolitical organization that just doesn't happen. Um, and so it wasn't met in Israel by outrage. It was met with what the hell are they talking about? Um, it was more kind of just, you know, they were they were mocking us a bit. So. My point is on the bilateral relationships, you know, uh, manageable, you know, we'll work through it, um, but not not outrage, you know. And then the final point is, are the Ukrainians going to alter their offensive, their war plans? The answer is no. I mean, you know, there was some, I, I'm not going to, unnamed news organization, you know, had an anonymous quote from a Ukrainian official, we're changing our war plans. Well, no, they're not. Um, you know, and, and, and so, so I, I don't know, I just, I thought the, the entire thing was, I, I was, I was one of the lone voices kind of screaming out there saying, everyone, please calm down. It's sort of taken hold now, but, uh, I was a little disappointed in a lot of the national security, uh, reporting on it because it's almost that they wanted it to be, um, you know, worse than Snowden. And look, Snowden compromised massive NSA surveillance systems, thousands of pages of documents. This is not Snowden. So you just got to put it in context. I don't want to be seen as dismissing what occurred. We have some, you know, some, some work to do with our allies, uh, uh, you know, but, but again, that's what we do. And, uh, and so end of the day, not a disaster, not end of days. Serious, yes, but let's put this in perspective. First of all, I really agree with, with everything you've just said. And I think uh, there was, it, it reflected a lot of naivete in the coverage. 
the Mossad interfering in Israeli politics, the fall of Bakhmut. Isn't it possible, even likely, and do we even have an idea of how much of this material that is purportedly actually a leak has been faked? Right. And so, again, my understanding is that the, the material, uh, after it was kind of gone through several iterations of these chat rooms, at some point, you know, the Russian channels got it and they and they certainly altered the casualty figures for Ukraine. But but I think that we, we have to really let this investigation go forward. I mean, there's, you know, you could see how a hostile uh, service would want to sow discord between allies. And so, you know, the, the, the Mossad piece was one that, that kind of caught my mind. It just made no sense. It, it, anybody who knows the Israelis and Israeli politics, and I guess I think a lot of people just didn't kind of do that background digging. I mean, my background digging was, hey, I remember reading about this in the Israeli press late in late February. Mossad said it was okay for their for their folks to go out on the streets, the, the, the junior folks. So I, I think that the investigation is going to really focus on, um, uh, obviously, you know, DOD will have, access to what actual, you know, some of the, the true content was and to see if, if it was manipulated at all. And, and one, of, one of the questions I think we really should, um, should focus on, and again, I don't know the answer, is, you know, within the, this Discord uh, uh, discussion, you know, were there personas who joined in who perhaps were not who they, they said they were? Perhaps they were members of a hostile service. Um, you know, how did, how did you, know, you know, ultimately, you know, did the Russians, um, you know, use kind of a fake persona to, to gain access to this? I think that you know, that's what we'll see in the in, in the days and weeks to come. Um, I, I will tell you that that, the, you know, it, someone asked me, you know, how, do, how does one handle these things? And, you know, it's the old kind of, you know, intelligence community saying, you know, it, it, it admit nothing, deny everything and make counter accusations. So, you know, the Ukrainians just came out right away and said, this is all crap, you know, end of story. And they moved on. You know, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I think that, you know, that certainly is going to be a, a line that's taken. And that's done for public consumption in their countries. One thing, Danielle, you know this. There, you know, the, the, you know when, when, when the CIA station chief is going to meet the Mossad director, and I'm sure he or she has over the last couple of days and, and in the future, this will be a blip or not even discussed. Um, there is too much on everyone's plate uh, uh, around the world, you know, whether, whatever region they're in or around the world to really kind of focus on this. Um, uh, you know, having weathered these kind of, you know, issues before, you know, bilateral relationships absolutely continue. Uh, you know, these things are, are not discussed. You know, someone asked me, you know, you know, thinking back to uh, you know, our, our relationship with the, with the Saudis, which is a very, you know, longstanding and mature intelligence relationship. And after what happened in, with Khashoggi, um, which really was, you know, pretty explosive, uh, you know, the U.S. and the Saudi side still met on other issues. Um, so, you know, even, even in the worst of times, you know, the bilateral relationships still move forward. And that's just because people are intelligence professionals. Um, and, uh, and you learn to kind of separate kind of the, the stuff at the political level. And this is now at the political level, but you separate the political level from kind of the day-to-day grind on, on keeping everyone safe. And of course, you never want leaks uh, to come out, but the uh, exposure of the fact that the Egyptians were uh, planning to sell uh, artillery to the Russians. I, I read the other day that all of a sudden they, they're stopped doing that and they're now producing artillery for the Ukrainians. Right. So <laughs> sometimes there's a silver lining to these things. You know, I'm, I'm an old Middle East hand. So that to me was the most interesting because what you saw, um, at, you know, and this is with, and again, if we assume these, these, there's some legitimacy to these documents, you have, you know, with the Israelis, the Turks, the Egyptians, and the, and, and the Emiratis was, was, you know, the Middle East uh, and Middle Eastern countries, you know, you know, not necessarily towing the U.S. line anymore. 
And as we see the U.S. pivot towards Asia, which, you know, which certainly understandable with the, with the, you know, China being the pacing threat for us. And of course, the U.S. involvement in the war in Ukraine, you know, we don't have the bandwidth to deal with the Middle East. Uh, and so, you know, our, our, our Middle East allies of the past are, are you know, likely looking um, to, to a, a, a future in which the, the U.S. is certainly important, but not, might, may not be the dominant um, actor. And so when you see all these sides, you know, playing both sides, your first reaction is, oh, for God's sakes, what are they doing? And then you kind of put it in perspective. You're like, well, you know what? You know, U.S. might not be the, 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 the major player anymore. And, you know, it's not, it, one can argue that this is a mistake. I wish the U.S. was more um, focused on, on the region. But you also have to look at it from the, the perspective of these other countries. And they have, you know, they have their own interests to kind of move forward on. But I was thinking a lot about it this morning. I wasn't, I'm not as surprised as, uh, uh, as I was annoyed in the beginning. I mean, come on, what are the Egyptians doing? But then you think about it, and you're like, all right, well, you kind of get it. Um, U.S. is not the dominant player anymore in the region. And, uh, you, you know, one can criticize the Biden administration for it. And, I, um, and that's fair. Um, but we also are, have a massive shift towards Asia. The whole U.S. aircraft carrier has shifted towards uh, uh, towards Asia. So, you know, we don't have the bandwidth, I think, um, to deal with the Middle East like we used to. I don't like it, but I, I certainly understand it. $53 billion over 10 years is uh, is a little bit of bandwidth that should be buying us some uh, cooperation from the Egyptians. I agree. Can I ask you a question completely unrelated to this? Because we we did a sure. a podcast uh, a couple of years ago about Havana syndrome with Catherine Herod from CBS News, and of course you were a uh, victim of, of Havana syndrome. And so the first question is, how are you doing? You know, you're a patriot who who was a victim of this, and what do you think of the uh, of the conclusions that the CIA came up with, basically saying this wasn't for hostile foreign power behind this? Right. So. Uh, is I'm, I'm happy to answer these these questions. You know, my, you know, my it's kind of odd to have my whole kind of health, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> exposed to the entire planet. But that's my choice. I mean, I, I went public with this. And, and frankly, Catherine has been wonderful. You know, she came to my house. We did a great interview here. So she's been wonderful in, in not necessarily, you know, advocating one way or the other, but just, you know, uh, you know, really giving a voice to a lot of the victims. And so, well, first of all, I'm feeling much better. You know, I, I received, uh, you know, uh, and I have been receiving treatment at Walter Reed. Uh, their their traumatic brain injury um, clinic, and so that has been you know life changing for me and for the you know the the doctors and the nurses and the specialists. You know I have a lot of love for those folks. They they really saved me. Um, now of course you know I went public with my plea to get there back in 2020, um, uh, which was a which was a, a, a you know pretty monumental decision on my part because I was fighting with the agency for years to try to get me to Walter Reed. They were refusing to do so. And so, you know, after I went public um, with that, you know, they quickly kind of changed their tune uh, and, and I got there. So I'm feeling better. So thank you for that. I have, you know, I have much more bandwidth and, and I'm, I'm much healthier than I was, although it's still, you know, five years this last December. I still have a headache every day, which is pretty remarkable. But the, you know, the, 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 the intelligence community's response to this, well, I'll say the agency in particular has been, uh, has been you know, and well, I'll say this generously, has been very mixed. Um, you know, while, you know, Bill, Bill Burns deserves a lot of credit for, um, first of all, you know, kind of looking in the past in terms of an inspector general report, which is not out, it's not publicized. I haven't seen it, but I've, I've heard quite a bit about it. And it's a pretty honest assessment of how the agency really mishandled this. And then the next part is getting people health care. And that, that to me, you know, I think they've gotten a lot better where I think they failed massively is on the attribution piece. And that, you know, that, that intelligence community product recently, uh, put out, um, makes no sense to me because, you know, how is it where you have congressional legislation signed by the president 
in which those victims of, you know, Havana syndrome were compensated by the U.S. government after, you know, and I was, uh, after my doctors at Walter Reed said, Mark suffered a traumatic brain injury that's not a pre-existing condition. It's from an external event and it was in, in the line of duty. You know, and, and I was in Moscow in 2017. And, and so U.S. government's paid out a lot of money to us on this, you know, uh, which, which actually it's not a lot, but um, it's still the right thing to do with all the kind of the own personal costs that we've, we've had to incur. But how do you, you know, rectify that within a statement saying, you know, it's, it's basically nothing? And, and so, you know, the agency to me, it's, it's really disappointing um, on my, for my former colleagues. It's pretty painful. I mean, I feel a, a, a pretty big kind of, uh, you know, notion of, of betrayal. And so, but then I contrast that with DOD and the Department of Defense. Um, you know, they do believe this occurred and they've taken over the investigation. And, and, you know, immediately when the agency came out or the intelligence community, the NIC product um, came out saying that there was, you know, likely no foreign power, DOD officials contacted me right away and said, we're taking over the investigation and we believe you. So it's almost a dysfunctional government. You know, this is, there's no whole of government approach on this. And so ultimately, I'm pretty disappointed in, 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 on, on the analytic side, my colleagues. Um, on the operational side, I will tell you, there's not a single member of the, the director of operations who hasn't contacted me personally and said, we believe what happened to you. Because myself and others, you know, they know that we were kind of the tip of the spear for the U.S. government, you know, in great kind of mental and physical health. And all of a sudden, you know, we're a mess. And so something happened. And so on the operational side, they, they certainly believe it. On the analytic side, you know, sadly, they don't. Um, and that to me is, uh, is been, has been very hard to, to kind of digest because these, these, you know, while I was a, an operations officer, these still were my colleagues and I feel a bit of a betrayal from them. Well, Mark, I'm with you on this one. And, uh, well, I, I unfortunately think that your colleagues, uh, too often get it wrong and aren't often enough held to account for that, but that is a different podcast. Thank you. First of all, thank you for your service. Um, and, and thank you for this conversation. This was a terrific, uh, a terrific and sober, something we never are able to say anymore about coverage of almost anything, a sober look at this leak. I think that there are additional substantive questions about China and about Russia and about Ukraine and all of that. But in terms of the intelligence side, you know, yes. Why aren't there more normal people out there? Thank you for being one. <laughs> Thank you both very much. Great to be with you. So, Mark, what did you think about your digression, but super interesting? What did you think about that that conversation about Havana syndrome? Well, uh, first of all, I just I think the idea that this was not done by a foreign government is so patently absurd. I mean, emphasizing your point from the intro about how a lot of the intelligence analysis is not all necessarily all that good. The idea that he got this in Moscow and that other people got this in Havana and that this has happened to a lot of people in multiple countries, that it's that it's not a pre-existing condition, that it's a traumatic brain injury, but no one intentionally did it to all these. And the people who are getting it are all U.S. diplomats or intelligence officers. But nothing to see here is just so patently absurd on the face of it that I don't even know how it passes the smell test. But that's the thing. It really underscores, I think, the point that we were trying to make, exactly what you said, you know, which is, you know, these people are, it's not just that they're fallible. What also mo motivates these people is politics. And, and we shouldn't forget that. You may think, and, and our various directors of central intelligence and other intelligence agencies may assert that their work is apolitical. Let me tell you, from soup to nuts, that is garbage. The only time you see stuff that is genuinely apolitical is when they don't care at all. 
So when we have no national political interest, it's apolitical. But when it means that we have to look at what the Russians or the or the Cubans might be doing, you can be certain that one of the things that these guys are thinking is, ooh, is this going to be bad for the relationship? Ooh, is this going to be bad for our cooperative relationship? Ooh, is this going to mean more sanctions on somewhere like Cuba that I really wish was not, you know, was not embargoed by the United States? It's all of that stuff. And I think it's gross. Yeah, I agree. But on the other hand, you know what? Mark is a perfect example of why there are so many good, decent, patriotic, skilled people in our intelligence community who are who are serving our country well. And, you know, they get uh, they get the crap kicked out of them these days in certain corners on the right and the left. And there are just a lot of good people who are, you know, like him, who are going out and risking their lives every day to get us intelligence that we need to keep this country safe. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad that he served our country for so long and that there are people like him today who are doing that in post and we, many of whom will never know. We'll never know their accomplishments. We'll never know their exploits. We'll never know the sacrifices they made, but we're all benefiting from it. That is a beautiful note on which to end and completely and utterly true. Folks, thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening. Don't hesitate to reach out and share your ideas. We always appreciate it. See you next week. Bye. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.